Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31 as we continue our journey through this gospel. The title for today's sermon is Good Enough? With a question mark. All right. Uh, It raises the question, just how good do we have to be to get into heaven? Just how good do we have to be to get into heaven? I I can't hardly think of a more important question. So let's tackle it together. Now, in light of the length of this passage today, we're not going to read it as a whole. We're going to work through it section by section. And the first section is a good, in quotation marks, man. Again, note the quotation marks because one of the uses of quotation marks is to show that the validity of a word is doubted. The validity of a word is doubted. And so you will see why the goodness of this man in our text is doubted in just a moment. And so the text begins like this in verse 17. It begins, and as he, meaning Jesus, was setting out on his journey a man ran up and knelt before him. And so this is the story of a man, a man who is mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each of them gives us a little bit more information about this guy, about his identity. According to Mark, we learn that he was rich. Matthew tells us that he was young. And Luke tells us that he was a ruler of some sort, and we can probably infer that he was the ruler of a synagogue. And so when you put all of these together, we get that familiar title, the rich young ruler, right? You've heard of him before. I would also add he's the rich young religious ruler, all right, which adds another layer to his identity. And so clearly by earthly standards, he's got a lot going for him, doesn't he? How many of you wish you were young again, right? How many of you wish you were rich? How many of you wish you were a ruler of some... With a lot of things going for this guy by earthly standards. And so, youth, riches, status, power, religion, and yet even with all that, he's unsettled. He's lacking something. He senses it. He knows it. He doesn't have peace. And isn't that true? I mean, we look at like Hollywood... Um, And we look at the rich and famous and we think, oh, if there's anybody in the world who could be happy and content, it must be these folks. And yet there's such a track record, right, of addiction and abuse and of unsettledness and lacking in peace and tragic, tragic stories. The, The king of rock, the king of pop, there they are. So here's this guy, young, rich, powerful, religious, and he's lacking peace. In the second half of verse 17, it reads, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is, in fact, the the question asked by every non-Christian religion and every cult. What do I have to do to be saved? How can I achieve eternal life? Tell me, tell me how to earn it. Or put another way, how good is good enough? Just how good do we have to be to get to heaven? Tell me, 
and I'll do it. And so this rich, young, religious ruler has some sense that he's missing something, that he's falling short, that he is not yet good enough, that there is in fact something else that he must do. And so Jesus responds to him in verse 18, um, an unexpected response. This is not what we would think that Jesus would say right out of the blocks. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, at first glance, it might appear that Jesus is saying that he himself is not good or that he himself is not God, that Jesus is actually denying these things about himself, but that's not at all what he's doing. Instead, as Jesus will do with questions, he's setting the man up. He's asking these questions to set the man up to make a point, Um, and he's setting him up to make the point using an exercise in logic. And so watch this. Um, This exercise in logic will put Jesus in his right place and put this man in his rightful place. Here it is. Logic point number one from this question, these questions that Jesus asks. Number one, only God is good. Only God is good. The Greek word for good there is agathos. It was never applied in Jesus' day to the rabbis because it implied sinlessness something that could only be attributed to God himself. Therefore, only and truly is God good, which leads to logic point number two. Jesus is saying, if I am good, as you say, what does that mean about my identity? It means that I'm God. So, rich young ruler, think about the ramifications of what you're saying. The one standing before you is not just a gifted rabbi. He's not just a teacher who's able to dispense spiritual lessons to you. Rather, if I am good, as you say... And only God is good, then I am God. Which leads to logic point number three. Rich young ruler, you are not God. Which ultimately leads to logic point number four. The death blow, the punch line of this all. Number four, rich young ruler, therefore, you are not good. Because only God is good and you are not God. So you get it? Do you understand where Jesus was headed with these questions? Jesus wants this man to understand that no matter how young he is, no matter how rich he is, or religious, or powerful, or how good he may think he is about himself, he is in fact not good, and he is a sinner in need of a Savior. That's something that maybe some of us need to be reminded of today. You are not good. I am not good. Only God is good. We are sinners desperately in need of a Savior. And so Jesus continues this line of thinking to prove his point using the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to this man, this religious man, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, What do you notice about these commandments that Jesus puts out there, these that he chose to list? What do they all have in common? Well, when we consider the structure of the Ten Commandments, we'll put that up there, it's really interesting how those commandments are put together. What do you notice about how the Ten Commandments are organized or structured? You'll see that the first four commandments tend to be vertical, right? They tend to deal with how we relate to God. The other six tend to be horizontal or how we deal with and relate to people. 
And so the commandments that Jesus quotes to the rich young ruler are from the right side of the chart, those dealing with how we relate to people. Jesus purposely, again, he's going to set them up to make a point for his own good. Jesus isn't trying to embarrass this guy or to have a gotcha moment, but he is trying because he loves him so much to teach him and to show him his desperate need. And so at this point, the guy isn't getting it right? Because he says in verse 20, the rich, young, religious ruler says, teacher, all these have I have kept from my youth. What do you think about that? That's a little optimistic, don't you think? What are we learning about this guy? Well, he really doesn't understand his spiritual condition. He greatly overestimates his goodness, and he greatly underestimates his sinfulness. And that's a big problem. Now, let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a moment and just say, even though it's not true, but let's just say that he really did keep those commandments outwardly. The problem with that is that when we go back to the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what do we learn about the commandments? How God views them? How does God view our keeping of the commandments? Well, we learned that it isn't just about our outward behavior. Rather, it's about the inward condition of our hearts. So, okay, rich, young, religious ruler, so you've never outwardly murdered anyone. Good for you. But have you hated? You've never outwardly committed adultery. But have you lusted? You've never outwardly stolen anything, but have you inwardly coveted? And I'm sure, truth be told, if the man was honest... This rich, young religious ruler was guilty of breaking all of these commandments, at least inwardly, which in God's eyes is every bit as bad as doing them outwardly. Again, meaning that the man greatly overestimated his goodness and underestimated his sinfulness. Well, how will Jesus respond to his lack of awareness? Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that beautiful? Aren't you glad that Jesus responds to us the same way, even when we're knuckleheads, even when we're not getting it right, even when we should be getting it by now? We see Jesus as he deals with the disciples, and there are times when Jesus does speak very strongly to them, but he does so out of love. Um, but Jesus doesn't um, become argumentative or combative with this man or say, why aren't you getting this? Rather, he loved the rich, young, religious ruler, even in the midst of the man's perceived self-righteousness. And it is precisely because Jesus loved the man that Jesus will put the man's heart to the test in the second half of verse 21. Look, look at what Jesus says. All right, rich, young, religious ruler, let's assume that you did all those other things right, but here, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Now, is the issue here really money? It is not really literally about money. Does Jesus intend for all of his followers to sell all that they have and give it to the poor? No, 
He does not. So then what exactly is Jesus doing here? What he's doing is now he's going to bring those first four of the Ten Commandments into the conversation with the man, those commandments that deal with how we relate to God. And especially, commandment number one, do not worship any other gods. Which is key because if you think about it, all of the other commandments ultimately flow from the first, do they not? And therefore, the breaking of all other commandments are ultimately due to a breaking of the first. So if Jesus can demonstrate the man is guilty of breaking the first commandment, then it will become obvious, hopefully to him, that he's really guilty of breaking all of them. Jesus wants to put his finger right on the man's knee, right on his heart, and show that this rich, young, religious ruler was not nearly as good as he thought that he was. And so Jesus goes right for the heart and exposes the rich, young, religious ruler's true God, which was his wealth. That's why Jesus went after his money. That's why Jesus said, sell all that you have, because this was his idol. And so Jesus will challenge this man to truly repent of this idolatry because only then, only then will this rich, young, religious ruler inherit eternal life. The response of the rich, young, religious ruler is very tragic in verse 22. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions been called the saddest verse in the Bible. The one time that someone came to Jesus with a need and left without that need being filled. The rich young religious ruler was shown to not be so, quote, good after all. He was in fact an idolater guilty of breaking the first commandment. Why? Because his real God was what? Money. And he was un willing to let go of it. You may have heard the story of um, how to catch a monkey. I bet you, Pastor Mac, you've told this one before. It's a good one. It's a timeless sermon illustration. But monkeys love the seeds of melons. And so if you were to cut a small hole in the melon just big enough for the monkey to put his hand through, the monkey will then make a fist to grab hold of the seeds inside the melon. The problem for the monkey is that the fist is then too big to pull it back through the hole in the melon, meaning that the monkey's hand is stuck, making him then easily captured. The monkey's downfall is his conviction... I'm not letting go. And it is that conviction that leads the monkey into bondage, just as it was the conviction that led the rich, young, religious ruler into bondage. He was unwilling to let go of his wealth, which was his idol, to follow Jesus. And it raises the question, this is where it gets personal, what are we unwilling to let go of. What is it that if Jesus were to put his finger on it and say, do you love me more than this? That you would be reluctant. You'd be defensive. You would say, oh, no, 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 not that. Don't go there, Jesus. 
For anything that we hold with a tight fist that Jesus says to let go is in fact an idol and the breaking of that first commandment, just like it was for the rich, young, religious ruler. So that's the first point in our outline, that first section, a quote, good man. The second section is a good lesson. No quotation marks here. It's truly good, okay? Um, Look with me at verse 23. So the man was left. He went away sad. He went away as an idolater, therefore separated from God. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A situation that looks somewhat like this, you know, we can think about it, but so we see it, it's comical, but it's very vivid as well. The camel was the largest animal found on Palestinian soil, and arguably the eye of a needle would be the smallest opening. Clearly, the, the large camel passing through the tiny opening, that's an impossibility. And this is how Jesus described the possibility of a rich person entering the kingdom of heaven. The the question we have to wrestle with is, why is that? Why does Jesus have such a thing against the wealthy? Why is it so difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why did Jesus say this was so? Well, let's put it back in context for a minute, what we've been talking about the last several weeks. What had Jesus been teaching his apostles in the previous passages? How do, how do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Like what? Like a child. Remember back in verse 14? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. So according to Jesus, eternal life can in no way be earned or achieved. It can only be received by faith as a child. And children are best at receiving. Why? Because they haven't done anything. They haven't earned or achieved anything. All they can do is receive. And so it is to be for us, no matter what our age is, spiritually, we are to receive salvation like a little child, helpless and Dependent. The problem, as we pointed out last week, was this. Left to ourselves, as we age, we move from helpless dependence of childhood, which is exactly what Jesus wants for us spiritually, to prideful independence of adulthood. And that's where we threw up those statistics last week, which are absolutely mind-boggling about um, the, the percentages of people who come to know Christ at a young age versus an older age. And it is true, I think we can agree, that the wealthier that we are, and make no mistake, church, there isn't a one of us by the world standards that is sitting in this building or even online that isn't wealthy. The wealthier we are, the greater the temptation to be pridefully independent. We can lean on other things. We can lean on our stuff. We can lean on our bank accounts. we're, We're hurting, we can numb the pain by something that we can purchase, something we can buy. Now, thankfully, 
God has raised up people with the gifts of earning and giving who are used mightily for the sake of the kingdom. That is part of God's plan. And these people are truly exceptional for their ability to have wealth, but also be spiritually helplessly dependent upon God as a little child. That's a, that's a marvelous thing. And I look at people who are able to do that and say, wow, you are special because left to myself. Apparently, God can't trust me with that kind of wealth. He knows better, okay? And I thank Him for that. Thank you, Jesus. Um, But for so many, material resources are a great temptation toward prideful independence. So again, so many other things we can lean on other than God. So many choices that we can make. The problem is, as we've seen, that is completely counter- to the gospel of God's grace, which must be received like a little child, not earned, not achieved, not bought. Well, this lesson caused the apostles to exclaim in verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? Think about it from their perspective. They're they're looking at this, this young, rich, religious ruler, and they're kind of looking at him as like, he's got it going on. He's even moral. And if this guy can't enter the kingdom of God, who seems like such a prime candidate, he's exactly the kind of person we would expect to find in God's kingdom. But now, Jesus, you're saying, no, that's not the kind of person at all. Well, if not him, then who? And so Jesus answered in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible. He's saying salvation is only of God by his grace. It is impossible for man to be good enough. Even a rich, young religious ruler does not measure up. Therefore, It is an act of God by His grace. The kingdom can only be received as a little child would receive it. So with man, impossible. Doesn't matter how young, rich, religious, powerful you are. Can't earn it. It is only possible with God giving His grace. And so those are the first two sections. A good man, a good lesson. Thirdly, we finish with a good future. A good future. Verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left everything to follow you. Predictably, Peter speaks up when he probably should have remained quiet, right? He points out to Jesus as if Jesus didn't already know that the apostles had actually done what the rich young religious ruler had not done. They had actually left their homes their jobs, their material possessions, their security to follow Jesus. And you you can't help but read into Peter's words, and my apologies to Peter if I'm reading too much into it, but it's almost like you can hear Peter really inferring, what's in it for us? Um, Almost word for word, the sentiments of the Ray Kinsella character from the best movie ever, Field of Dreams, right? Um the Kevin Costner character in the movie, toward the end of the movie, Ray Kinsella says, I did it all. I listened to the voices. 
I did what they told me, and not once did I ask what's in it for me. And then Shoeless Joe Jackson says, what are you saying, Ray? Ray responds, I'm saying, what's in it for me? Which sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? Well, like Jesus had done so many times, he exercised tremendous patience, and not just with the, the man in the story, but now also with Peter. And Jesus says in verse 29, these encouraging words about a good future. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, that's an interesting phrase, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, whatever we give up for God will pale in comparison to what we will receive. Whatever we give up for God, even if it's all of our riches, will pale in comparison to what we will receive. That rich young religious ruler totally missed it, or he didn't want to get it. He made a very foolish decision when he walked away. You see, when he chose to hang on to earthly, temporal riches, he forfeited eternal riches. And this truth helps us understand the parables that Jesus taught in Matthew 13. Um, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's the point? The kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure of them all. Therefore, back to that point, whatever we give up for God will pale in comparison to what we will receive. And, and Satan's great strategy He's already doing it for some of you because the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on something in your life right now and you're, you're, you're rationalizing and you're having this argument with God right now. Satan's great strategy is to tempt us to believe otherwise. But we can't give that up. We shouldn't have to give that up. Satan's efforts are to get us to settle for earthly treasure when all along we can have eternal treasure. And so the text ends with verse 31. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. See, by, by earthly standards, who was first on the food chain? The rich, young, religious ruler. He's up here at the top. And who would have been last on the food chain? The children. The children. But in the economy of God's kingdom, it is the one who receives salvation as a child who is ultimately first meaning that someone like the rich, young, religious ruler is ultimately last. Which are you? Which are you? So those are the three sections of the text, a, quote, good man, a good lesson, and a good future. Let's shift now to application and ask, how should we then live? Um, four points. Point number one is this. You are worse than you think. which is not what you probably came here this morning to hear, but let's start there anyway. You are worse than you think. Uh, listen to what Ephesians 2.1 says about your spiritual condition left to yourself. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. Let that sink in for a moment. 
spiritually speaking, in your sin, you are dead. Buried in a tomb like Lazarus, what can a dead man do for himself or a dead woman do for herself? Nothing. Nothing. That is the truth that the rich young religious ruler did not grasp. He thought he could do something. Teacher, what, what is left? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Dead men can't do anything. He was worse than he thought, and so are we. But that leads to application point number two. God's grace is greater than you think. God's grace is greater than you think. No one is so far gone spiritually, so far dead, that Jesus cannot raise them to life just like he did Lazarus. The Bible is full of testimonies of wretched sinners who were marvelously saved by God's grace. Um, Chief among them, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, who said of himself that he is the worst, the chief of sinners. Yet, Jesus marvelously, miraculously raised him from spiritual death to spiritual life. What Jesus did for Paul, he can do for you. You see, while you are worse than you think, God's grace, his power, his love, his mercy is greater than you think, but beware because application point number three, idolatry is more prevalent than you think. Idolatry is more prevalent than you think. If I'd ask you this morning, say, hey, do you worship idols? Most of you'd be like, no, I don't do that. I don't, I don't bow before some little statue, and um, I'm not an idol worshiper. But as we learn from the rich, young, religious ruler, idolatry is not primarily a statue. Rather, idolatry is anything that we choose to cling to rather than Jesus. Just like the monkey we talked about earlier. For some of you, that, that idol might be your material possessions. For some of you, it might be a relationship. It might be a job, a calling. It might be your safety or your security, your unwillingness to let go of certain things. Whatever it is, Jesus is speaking to you in love through his Holy Spirit, just as he did with the rich young ruler. And he is, he is telling you, let it go. If you want to be truly free, if you really want to know me, if you really want the riches of eternal life, let it go. He's bringing you to a spiritual crossroads. And there's only two ways. Will you worship Jesus or will you worship something else? Will you live for earthly treasure or will you live for eternal treasure? Which leads to application point number four, which is this. Eternal rewards are far better than you think. Eternal rewards are far better than you think. As we mentioned earlier, Satan will do all he can to convince you otherwise, to speak lies to you, and again, to get you to rationalize, and that you shouldn't have to, and God wouldn't, and um, all in an effort to get you to live for the temporal rather than the eternal. Don't fall into his trap. Don't walk away sorrowful like the rich, young, religious ruler. Don't forfeit the greatest treasure of all for something far, far less. There's another old story I guarantee Pastor Mac has used uh, about a rich man who was near death. 
And he grieved because he had worked so hard here on earth and he wanted to carry his riches to heaven with him. So the rich man pleaded with God and God relented and allowed him to bring one bag. One bag he could bring from earth to heaven. Overjoyed, he loaded his suitcase full of gold bars. And upon arrival at heaven, he was checking in and was told by Peter that the bag would not be allowed, but he insisted, I have permission. God told me I could bring it. And so things were checked on. It was found that he did have approval from God. And when the bag was opened to see what was so needed by the man, Peter exclaimed, pavement. You brought pavement with you to heaven. Reminding us that heaven, eternal life, the kingdom of God is a place so vast and its riches so great that what we call pavement is gold. Gold is its pavement, what we walk on. Reminding us that, again, you are worse than you think. God's grace is greater than you think. Idolatry is more prevalent than you think. And eternal rewards are far better than you think. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, this passage is hard because it, it hits us right where we are. And, and I, I believe no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, um, it challenges us to do some inventory and to say, what, what is there that I'm clinging to? What is there that, like that monkey, is tight in my fist and I'm in bondage because I won't let it go? God, I pray that all over the sanctuary, all over the commons, all over those who are watching via the live stream, that, God, you would do business with them by the power of your Holy Spirit right now to, to lovingly, just as you did with the man, to lovingly put your finger on those things and to say, give it up. I've got something far, far better. I've got freedom. I've got eternal riches. I've got myself. Give it up. And God, I pray that you would give courage to those who are confronted with such things this morning, that you would give them courage to do just that, and that you would set them free. God, thank you that you love us so much to speak the truth to us. You love us far too much to just leave us in our sin and leave us in our bondage. And so, God, may we follow you and your Spirit's lead to the way to freedom. We thank you for our great and marvelous salvation that we do not earn. We contribute nothing. Thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.